Our latest guest on Soundtracking is an award-winning playwright and theatre director, now turning her hand to cinema, and quite brilliantly. Jessica Swill's first play, Blue Stockings, premiered at Shakespeare's Globe in 2013. She went on to win an Olivier Award for Nell Gwynn in 2016, a comedy initially starring Gugu Mbatha-Raw and then Gemma Arterton when it transferred to the West End. Fittingly, both women take leading roles in Jessica's debut feature, Summerland. Spanning half a century, Summerland tells the story of Alice, a reclusive writer who is forced to take on a young evacuee called Frank during World War II, totally against her wishes. I think it's a genuinely moving tale, complemented beautifully by Volker Bertelmann's music, a.k.a. Hauschka. But before we begin with his cue in search of Summerland, we'd like to say a massive thank you to Jess Barry at Lionsgate and indeed the filmmakers for providing us with his score, given that it's yet to be commercially released. Massive thanks. I'm good. How are you? You look awesome. Oh, thanks. I was sitting in the kitchen and I was like, <laughs> all anyone can see is like all the dirty washing up. I think I've got to move and go somewhere more respectable. <laughs> I'm so over doing like washing up and cooking. Oh my God. And listen, congratulations on the film. I just, I was just talking to Gemma about it and um, yeah, I had all the emotions. Such a beautiful story. And, and, and I, I think I mentioned to you about, I don't know, it just feels such an inclusive film without feeling like it's got a headline of being inclusive in a way. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It just feels like a, a, a beautifully told story that is just really clever and emotional and funny without it kind of going, it has to be about this and it has to be about that. Well, I think that was a really conscious decision because, you know, particularly working with people like Gugu, whom I have known forever and who I love dearly and have always admired her work. And, you know, we became friends on our very first job together back in, I think it was probably... 2000, 2001, wow. in the theatre when we both were bunking off our final terms of our respective courses <laughs> to, to run away and actually to take a job when it got offered. And I've just watched her grow so much as an actress and I think she's so fantastically talented. 
But so many, in her earlier career, so many of the times when she got offered a fantastic role, particularly those lead roles, they're always in stories to do with race. And I think that's just been par for the course in the industry, that mm. if you have a fantastic actor of colour, then they can take those roles, but only if the story requires it. And I just yeah. think you just cast an actor for their spirit. And I cast her because Vera is the sort of charismatic whirlwind that knocks Alice off her feet. And so... It was nice to cast her for that reason. Yeah. And of course, it also, I mean, I feel really passionately that we ought to be as diverse on our screens as we are. And we try and be in our audiences. So that was a great bonus. But yeah, I feel like it was really nice to make a film about an interracial relationship and about a gay relationship where yeah. neither of those things were what defined that relationship. And particularly with that period as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'd only ever seen films about gay couples where the breakup was about the fact that it was too difficult to be gay. I mean, it's not my sort of area of expertise. I don't think I've seen an enormous amount of um, LGBTQ cinema. But I think that if films get into the mainstream cinema and celebrate those stories, it's so often about the troublesome nature of, of like how much of a burden it is to deal with that sort of you know, the the way that sexuality is seen. And so this story is about two women who happen to fall in love with each other, but they can't be together, not because they're both women, but because they want two different things from a relationship. And actually yeah. it was I was sort of going through at the time, I was writing about my own experience, but like with a guy, it didn't make any difference. But Yeah, know. absolutely. That's the whole point. And that's what's so beautiful about your writing. Do you want me asking what was the... Because there's this brilliant, I was just talking to Gemma. So I just moved to Gloucestershire just before Christmas. And I am in this kind of amazing sort of world that celebrates kind of um, mythology and paganism and all that kind of stuff. And so... proud. Yeah. Yeah, I thought you Literally might... down the road. I knew. Yeah. Playing that, I was like, oh, I bet she's in Stroud. Yeah, totally. I love it. And so... Um, that that part of the story, this whole you know, this idea of it's such it's so subtly part of the the uh, Morgana is that how you say it? Morgana, yeah. And, and all that, I love that element to it as well. And where did your knowledge or that element to the story come from? Because I'm now obsessed. Where I'm like, okay, I've got to go and find as many books as I can on this. Oh, let me yeah. send you a book list. I mean, I I need it very little. Um, but there was always something a bit kind of sexy and cool and attractive about um, the mystery of those folklore stories. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of my family is from South Wales. And, you know, so you, you grow up with a bit of that Celtic mythology kind of in your blood. And the reason it came into the film was because this was the first I'd written quite a few films when I started writing this, but they were all adaptations of work I'd done in the theatre. And so this was the first time I wrote a film that was specifically for the cinema from scratch and so I kind of asked myself at the beginning of that process what why write for cinema what can you do and I kept on thinking well why would I want to shoot something that was a reflection of absolute everyday life when that's something that we can see without going to the movies what can you get from the movies that is specific to that you know, imagination and magic and something beyond our everyday experience. And I really believe in the power of, you know, imagination and, and being able to see possibilities. I think that's, that's great. Like the arts can be so fulfilling and so hope filling as well. 
And so I really wanted to write a story that had some magic realism in it because I thought if we're making a film for the cinema, then let's make it cinematic. And I've always loved magic realism because I love the what if as well. Yeah. Sort of like, if there is a possibility of something beyond, what could that be? You know, I'm a Pisces and a bit of a dreamer, so that's not really a surprise. But the folklore then started coming into it because the more I started thinking about landscape and Englishness and what this woman would do, what she, I thought she was a historian and then that wasn't quite enough. So I started thinking, oh, what if she was into myths and legends, but through her experience, somebody who loves the idea of magic, but has then absolutely squashed it. Her life experience has turned her into a bitter cynic. I like the idea of someone not believing in magic. And then the importance of this kid who turns up that actually makes her question everything that she knows mm-hmm. and wonder whether magic might exist. But the, the truth of it is those stories like the Fata Morgana myth and the notion of Summerland as a sort of pagan heaven, I've twisted them a little bit, but they're all real stories. And amazingly, the newspaper article that uh, Alice looks at that Frank reads about the fact that the people of Ramsgate at the end of the 1800s were looking out onto the sea and saw Dover Castle floating above the ocean. That's verbatim. That article read word for word. People were standing on the cliff seeing a castle floating in the sky. But, you know, I was thinking, you know, if you did believe in magic and you saw that, you wouldn't think, oh, well, what an interesting trick of the light. And if you were somewhere or someone who was looking for or imagining trying to seek evidence that there might be some sort of heaven or something beyond if you've lost someone and if you see anything like that I think when you're in that position you do start to layer that on top of whatever you really see absolutely yeah it's so beautiful and to the point where it's so subtly kind of weaved through the story um that when when there's that kind of almost big reveal within the film I was like I had like almost like a wave of emotion like overtake me going oh it was so it was so powerful you didn't even realize that it was kind of almost kind of embedding itself within you it was so it's so it's so brilliant just one of the many things I loved about it as well and let's talk about music because I love the journey of the music in the film and I love how um uh it's it's so what's something like you know how you can help the aged you can bugger off and then (laughs) the music starts and this is kind of really beautiful kind of quite staccato strings I kind of noticed as, as Alice's as we then go back and we we see Alice's character from an earlier age quite kind of bitter I guess you know at, at, yeah. at the point and then through events uh, I don't want to give much away the music almost becomes slightly softer so it's less staccato and it's 
so many questions, but Volker, who you worked with as composer, how did you come to the decision of he was the right person to score the film for you, first of all? Oh, well, I mean, his work is just sort of transcendent and extraordinary. And I'd listened to a lot of his sort of compositions for piano and prepared piano. And we'd all been to see um, one of his gigs where he'd... (laughs) It's so amazing because he's the most brilliant pianist. And yet what people love about his music is that he has this sort of fun of, of... playing the prepared piano where he just sticks random things inside the piano to change the effect of it and I loved how much of a sort of inventor and nearly a uh, sort of magician he is mm-hmm. in terms of his approach to music and there was something in that that I found um, sort of linked up with the film. could absolutely do the sort of he that he had the capacity to find the emotion and to play all of the sort of more classical elements and to compose something that gave us a sort of a sensitive score and that captured the loss and the love and the heartache. But I think the challenge and what he was excited by too was that first part of the film, which is much brighter and where the music 
reflects in terms of rhythm and tone the sort of comedy of the language as well. It's a lot more um, kind of banter. There's a lot more to and fro. Alice is stickier and the music is stickier. We actually had to be really careful that it didn't feel like two completely different films and that the score yeah. wove together because there was early on points where we were sort of throwing ideas backwards and forwards and the more the music served the moment sometimes it felt like then it was difficult to shift gear enough so we started to work on themes that were sort of character-based and time-based. So Gugu has a theme and Alice has a theme and, and the past has elements which, in the same way that visually, there's little references that a viewer might get. We wanted to sort of tie together elements of the past and the present musically as well. And Volker was so game for throwing cues out there to try stuff and for me that's really really important it's the same as how I like to work with actors where you ask an actor for something from a scene but you know that what's going to be valuable is to try variations around that because the more choices that you have uh, the more possibilities that something might surprise you and I think it's the same with music and he was always up for he'd often write something and send it and then we'd try three or four different variations on that and somehow even in a sort of gut sense something would land and feel right and it would often be something you really didn't expect and I think that's one of the many things that makes him such a clever uh, composer and such a brilliant collaborator as well because he's not precious about sort of shifting things around. It's also lovely to see the kind of confidence you have in his music as uh, how important it is to the narrative because there's that moment where they're at the, the school and there's news that needs to be told and the music almost mutes the, there's no dialogue and the music kind of takes over almost kind of thing. And it's, it's so, it's, it's just a beautiful choice, you know, in terms of the easy thing would have been to have the dialogue continue whilst the music but, but to kind of remove the dialogue and allow the music to kind of almost do the job even more powerfully in a, slight, you know, in a, in a kind of collaborative way sort of thing. I hope so. And I think for me, one of the joys about filmmaking, which I'm having worked in theatre originally, you know, when you're a playwright in the theatre, you rely so much on dialogue to be able to be your single tool. 
then moving into film, the fact that you, I mean, it's partly about being a writer-director as well, but the fact that you have that audio language to play with as well as the visual and that dialogue can take a back seat and often it's what's not said which is most important and I've always loved music I write with a lot of music I was a, a dancer was one for my first sort of job and why are you so yeah back in the day a million years ago so so I sort of I feel like that's a language that is a shortcut for me you know and emotionally too that's why I like to write with music and for every project I always create a very long sort of track list of music that I've been listening to and that then another separate track list of music that I want to share so I shared my big soundtrack my Spotify list with the cast and crew oh wow yeah some of which relates to directly to the film in terms of what I would imagine that we might where we might go in terms of compositional choices but a lot of it was music that just spoke in some way to a theme or an attitude of a character even if it was out of context and um, putting that together is a really big part of my process as a storyteller and it's actually funnily enough I'm doing another project with Gemma at the moment where I think this is a lifelong collaboration (laughs) great yeah one of the um one of the most joyful parts of that creative process for both of us has been separately making our own playlists and then sharing them with each other and we didn't talk about it at all but what's amazing is how much similarity there is and and real contrast as well but where you think oh we don't need to have that conversation now because if you think this song is right and I get that so no words in lots of ways has been a thing yeah it's that kind of lovely thing that um I used to like used to make you know, your own kind of compilation tapes of, of things. Oh, yeah. I remember for a period of time, actually, when I was at Radio 1, I used to do it for guests where I, I would make them a like a mixtape sort of thing, oh, of songs, yeah. songs that I thought they would like or be into, and I would make a cover and everything for it. It was so much fun doing it. It was great. That's such a big part of, you know, the Walkman culture, like 90s. And I remember kind of slightly falling for a guy that I met you know, who, who then about a year later decided he was, decided he was gay. Like it was, I should have noticed at the time, but you know, cause he gave me a mixtape. I totally got the wrong end of the stick and decided that <laughs> the one for me when I was at school, because it was such a generous offer and, you know, yeah. to use music for someone. I, I think that's an, a really important element of Vera and Alice's relationship is that they bond over music and actually yeah. Music is a really key part of what pulls her back to those specific moments. The first time she meets Vera is in a concert and then the second, you know, when they're singing in the car and they're at the jazz performance. And the fact that it's the music and even seeing a programme that gives her such a, a hit of the strength of that memory and makes her sort of shy away from it. I think that's um, probably the case for a lot of people that, that it's, you know, it's like a strong smell where there's yeah. something just inexplicable about how it has an effect on, you know, the climate of your body. And yeah, you know, physical thing. Absolutely. Yeah. With, with that with that track where they're singing along in the car, um, Where's That Rainbow? Frank Black and his orchestra. Yeah. How, do you, how did you come to decide on that being the piece of music? I mean, it's such a beautiful scene. Yeah, well, it was funny because um, originally I had assumed it would be a song that would be somehow more about those two that there would be something a bit more romantic and nearly all of the music of the time is very a lot of it had such a romantic theme even though they were bright songs but it just felt too on the nose and 
we searched and searched and searched and I had such a whale of a time listening to all of those different tracks trying to find the one. then heard that I'd never heard it before and there was something so nearly muscular about it about the sort of brightness of the sentiment and how much it sort of made you feel and it was so fun and for me Vera has always been about jumping in and being game and having fun and the fact that the song isn't about being a couple it's about chasing a dream and driving out in terms of the lyrics and in terms of the shape of the music and the sort of silliness of the scat singing you know there was something about the, the joy in it and the usefulness also represented that was such a strong contrast I I wanted to when we cut back to Alice and see now that that is so far away from her experience until of course Frank turns up. Now where's that rainbow to hear about? Where's that lining they cheer about? Where's that love net where love is king of the rafters? Where's that blue room they sing about? Where's that sunshine they sing about? I know morning will come but pardon my laughter. In each scenario, you can depend on the end where the lovers agree. Where's that Lothario? Where does he roam with his own Vaseline as can be? It is easy to see, all right. Everything's gonna be all right. Be just Danny for everybody but me. Yeah, even her reaction when he pulls out the record and she kind of like just almost like rips his head off kind of thing with with a you know yeah dance. yes you can't she can't nearly to be in the room with it is too much it's there's heat in that object that yeah far too much and in fact there was a sequence where he put it on and she listened to it you know we did, we shot a lot actually of her experience of listening to it again for the first time and trying to sort of cope with it but ended up cutting nearly all of that part because it just wasn't necessary actually to yeah see her and and that's the wonder of Gemma and the sort of detail that she can bring to any single moment you think actually let's just imagine that she shows you without us having to watch her sort of unpack that whole yeah experience when you talked about the um soundtracks and writing writing to music and also putting together playlists to sort of play people and stuff. What kind of what kind of stuff go, was was were on those two separate things? You know, is it is it all is it a mix of kind of period stuff, different eras? What's what what's yeah. kind of on there? Yeah, so sort of to, I'm supposed to give you a sort of little pick and mix version of it. <laughs> Some of it is music which emotionally gets me in the right place as a writer, and I thought actually that was really important to help share particularly with the leading actors as well, to say, you know, this is, I'm really influenced by what I'm listening to. And actually, sometimes I feel like if, if I listen to a piece of music and it makes me feel a certain way and then that goes into the writing, then in order to play, if you can play the actor, the piece of music you're listening to, then, you know, you're sort of cutting a corner with needing to explain. So things like... Um, Nils Fromm and Keaton Henson, who I love. And I listened to Stray Ghost quite a lot, who I didn't really know beforehand, but that was one of the wonders of Spotify, the sort of links of... <laughs> yeah. You like you this? Like, you I might. Like <laughs> <laughs> and, and Greg Haynes and um, 
a lot of Bjork actually because uh, I find that she's so individual in her voice and there's yeah. something of Alice and Bjork they have that as something in common which is to do with slightly being an outsider and being slightly strange and distant from us and yet so unique and individual and Bjork has that brilliant sort of uh, boldness but also vulnerability at the same time and the sort yeah. of more that you to sort of that you get through I think the more you listen to her music and that somehow represented for me something in Alice. soundtrack that I didn't share with everyone else which is more about the sort of strength of character and the sort of the feminist side of it is you know who's got a lot more sort of St Vincent and a bit of Lizzo as well she's my absolute hero <laughs> um, yeah yeah of it was the folk part which actually yeah. I originally wondered whether it might be a more important part of the score because of the folklore and then it didn't quite feel right emotionally but I I'm a massive fan of Johnny Flynn and listened to quite a lot of the sort of early folk musicians like Pentangle and John Renborn and mm-hmm. those folks that like my dad was a fan of growing up and um he was a, a sort of big influence on me. My dad was a huge uh, music fan and I grew up listening to him playing the guitar all the time. And 
uh, so lots of the records that I inherited from him actually have sort of found their way, weaving their way into into this score. Yeah, and then and then the other part of that is modern music, which somehow captured some of the sense of place and lots of Icelandic music actually and um or sort of from those northern a lot of those northern countries like Aurora for example who yeah feel like somehow captures something to do with nature and folklore and spiritual yeah Listening to the ocean, I saw a face in the sand. But when I picked it up, then it vanished away from my hands. Done. I had a dream, I was seven, climbing my way in a tree. I saw a piece of heaven waiting in and I was running far away Would I run off the world someday? Nobody knows, nobody knows and I was dancing in the rain I felt alive and I can't complain But no, take me home, take me home where I belong I can't take it anymore And then daughter as well, who I just think are extraordinary. So, yeah. that's a great playlist <laughs> definitely for sure there's some, a couple of other beautiful cues as well that I just scribbled down whilst I was watching the film as well when they're back on the beach when she's when she's looking for him yes when, she, when she's looking for Frank and then they're back on the beach after she's found him or yeah yeah <laughs> so hard because I wanted to, I, it, when I was talking to Gemma as well I was like oh god we were talking about it well, we can't say anymore because don't want to you know <laughs> don't, don't want to spoil it for people because it is yeah it's gorgeous 
yeah it's like oh it just fills your heart with joy yeah oh good so well in in that moment where she finds him again and yet everything isn't resolved because she's in one way saved him in another way she is the reason why he is as distraught as he is and why he's um feels like he's lost quite so much and yeah and so trying to find a cue which both encapsulated the relief and the scale of that feeling but with a certain level of uncertainty because it's not all absolutely i think that's what's really important absolutely believe in redemption and hope but I don't want the audience to have it until the very last moment well yeah you don't want to manipulate their emotions do you as well it's kind of it's got to do a job but it can't do the full it's got to hold back isn't it yeah and actually as a first time feature maker I learned a lot about that that was one of my sort of one of my takeaways from the process of doing this because we worked with a temp score and sometimes my initial instinct was to lay something on a section, partly in order to help me get there with um, working with a brilliant editor, Tanya Reddin. I often felt like the music that I plumped for at first in order to shape that part of the story could, could tell you a little bit too much, leave less for the audience to do. And actually, she's got such great taste and notions of uh, what, you know, how to bring music in in order to support what you're saying, but not to give too much away. So yeah. that would be lovely, actually, realising that sometimes doing less and telling people less is the right answer. And I think yeah. that nearly always is. <laughs> yeah, totally. And listen, before we run out of time, um, so it was flown by, so lovely chatting to you, uh, leading lady parts. Oh, yes. So good. I did a live um, soundtracking at the BFI I mean, it's got to be a good year ago now, with um, uh, Carly Paradis, Emily Levinays, and Amelia Warner. Oh. And so we were able, we played, we played it um, on the big screen at BFI, and um, such a clever, clever little film. So good. Well, was we had it, so much fun making that, and it was lovely that everybody was so game, because we had such an extraordinary cast, and I'm so proud of the fact that we had, mm, I think, 99% women on the cast and crew to the extent that those jobs that, you know, there are not a lot of female grips, for example, and, you know, you've got to look for them, but they're there. (laughs) Because of the experience of doing that, because we managed to get nearly everybody, it really made me feel bold when we were making Summerland that when we were told how difficult that would be and how compromising it might be to have 50-50 cast and crew, I felt absolutely certain to be able to walk into a room and say well we can we just it might be hard 
so it's going to be hard let's do it and and I, Gemma was saying this morning it's the first film that she's ever made where it was 50 50 that's crazy uh, yeah isn't it and she's made a lot of films yeah and, but it's possible and you know so there was no doubt that we were going to work with a great woman in terms of uh, leading lady parts and the composition but Amelia I just loved her work and I felt like it often had a sense of humor as well and, absolutely yeah, and I thought that it was really important for it not to interfere too much because it's the timing and the rhythm of the cut of that film is so important to the comedy. Trying to lace those two things together, it really required some flexibility from her and she just is so game and so up for sort of serving the story that she was so easy to work with. And we've been chatting about the fact that often percussion lends itself particularly to comedy and that came for me from watching mum which i adore <laughs> leslie manville and coke and yeah. like, one of the best things on tv and the song in that which is cups um <laughs> my name when you're gone is so brilliantly funny and yet kind of breaks your heart at the same time Ticket for the long way round. Do buy the whiskey for the way. And I sure would like some sweet company. Yo, I'm leaving tomorrow. What do you say? When I'm gone. When I'm gone. When I'm gone. When I'm gone. You're gonna miss me when I'm gone. You're gonna miss me by my head. You're gonna miss me everywhere. You're gonna miss me when I'm gone. We started from that and then she came back with those percussive cues and that and um yeah and then built it into a whole piece and I think she did a wonderful job. Amazing. Jess, we've run out of time. I'm so sorry. I'd love to chat to you all day. Congratulations on Summerland. It is it's brilliant. It's uh yeah, as I said, I had all the emotions and I felt kind of euphoric after watching it as well. But I love that it's also kind of given me a new hobby of of going and diving into this world that you've unveiled to me of of these kind of yeah, this sort of mythical thing that I'm going to go and dive into. I'm glad it's been such a pleasure and I hope that you know I'm really really proud and feel very privileged that this is one of the first films to come back reopen yes. the cinemas. I know it's brilliant. I feel like the fact that it's a sort of film about optimism and the importance of hope in dark times I had no idea that this crisis was going to happen obviously when we were shooting but it feels so resonant and appropriate now that this is a film that you know we thought we were going to be coming out much earlier in the year and actually it feels like if there's ever a place for this film it absolutely really so long live the cinema yes thank you so much jess take care i hope i get to see you in person soon i hope so let's love bye <laughs> You must be... Amelia? Stacy. Felicity for the lady part. I'm Florence. Reading for the leading lady part. I'm Gemma. And what did you think of it, the part? Well, I loved it. It's just a great part. I think she's great. How do you see her? She was feisty. Feisty? She's bold. <laughs> she's the one calling the shots. She's... Mm. I think she's pretty... Thank God. Clever. She's, <laughs> she's pretty clever. That's not what you're going for. Well... No. I mean, we hadn't really... No. Clever's not really something we... Want or care about at all, actually. You do realise this is the leading lady part. Should we have a read? 
as written and directed by Jessica Swill. That's a short extract from Leading Lady Parts, featuring music by former guest on the show, the wonderful Amelia Warner, and rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking. My huge thanks to Jessica for taking the time to talk to us. Amazingly, Summerland is on general release now. It is so wonderful to be able to say that. Cinemas are open, so please do go and see it, but only, of course, if you feel comfortable doing so and do your little bit to help the industry get back on its feet, whilst also supporting female filmmakers and independent film. My huge thanks again to the filmmakers and Jess at Lionsgate for providing us with Volker Bertelmann's score. This episode really wouldn't have been the same without it. Now, if you want to hear that soundtracking live that I mentioned featuring Amelia, Carly and Emily, then head to edithbowman.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And please do check out our YouTube channel to watch a little show that I'm putting together. And we are back this week with a kind of Summerland special featuring Jess and also one of her leading ladies, the fabulous Gemma Arterton. Next up, to celebrate the start of Pixar Fest, which is on for the whole of August. What's your favourite Pixar film, by the way? There are so many. The Toy Stories, Finding Nemo, The Incredibles, The Cars, Wally Up, Brave, Inside Out, Finding Dory, Coco. The list goes on and on and on. To celebrate Pixar Fest, we shall be chatting to the one and only Dan Scanlon, who not only directed but also wrote the very personal story of the Pixar film Onwards. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs>